from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics. And I'm also one of the many members of our country who's been stunned by the ways that locker room talk has entered into our national conversation. As you might expect, my being the host of Women at Work, I was appalled by the exhibition of sexist and barbaric talk by someone no other than a presidential candidate. But I'm also particularly appalled by the dismissal of it in our national conversation by so many of it as meaningless, harmless, or just what boys do, and therefore unavoidable. On the other hand, I've also been enormously impressed and encouraged by the outcry of women and men that have followed along with this increasingly open and productive discussion of rape culture, along with declarations by men of their authentic respect for women and the importance of sustaining it, especially when no one's listening. And for that, I'd like to give a special shout out to the Amherst men's soccer team, by the way. As the host of Women at Work, this is obviously central to our mission. Women can't join, stay, succeed, or lead if we aren't safe and if we aren't fundamentally respected. Creating a culture of authentic respect is complicated work, and it's not just the work of one gender. As we always say, we are all in this together. So today, we're going to talk about locker room talk with two men who not only represent the best of what men can be, but who are also devoting their lives to education, advocacy, and the building of a more inclusive, diverse, and respectful culture in our workplaces and schools for everyone. In our first half hour, we'll be joined by the amazing Josh Labs, champion of gender equality and author of The Indispensable All In. And then we'll get the chance to talk with Professor Sean Harper, who wrote that stunning Washington Post piece on the uniquely important role men can play in stopping locker room talk. Our phones are open, and I'm guessing you might like to join in the conversation. If you do, you can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And we'd love to know, how are you dealing with locker room talk? How are you stopping it in the world that you live in? Um, while you contemplate that and give us a ring, I'd like to introduce our first guest. Josh Lefts is a journalist, an activist, and the author of All In, How Our Work First Culture Fails Dads, Families, and Businesses, and How We Can Fix It Together. Josh's tenacity and expertise have made him a formidable and positive force in the struggle for equal rights in the workplace. The Financial Times named him one of the top 10 male feminists. UN Women named him a global champion of gender equity. And Women at Work still list him as one of our all-time favorite guests. So with that, let me say welcome back, Josh. I'm so glad to be here. This is uh, such an important topic. And I got to tell you, this is not normal locker room talk. (laughs) It really, truly isn't. Let's let's talk this out. Yes, I think that's an excellent place to start. So locker room talk means that this is what boys talk about all the the time, or even girls when they're in single-sex environments. That can't be true. It, not even remotely. Look, I mean, it, it, this, this is what's so disturbing. When when men around the country also heard Donald Trump try to claim that that's locker room talk, all millions of us were like, no, it isn't. <laughs> Look, I work out. I spend time in locker rooms. I hang out with groups of men. I, I it, For my book alone, I did 150 hours of interviews with guys across all walks of life. As a reporter, I have covered sports games. I have been in locker rooms after games in which the players are there. This is not normal locker room talk. That's an excuse for his repugnant description in a very flippant and boastful way of what is absolutely, unquestionably, uh, sexual assault. Undoubtedly. Is there, are there places, though, where we see that men have conversations that they wouldn't be having if women weren't listening? Yes, and vice versa. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and so what we have to do is draw like a really careful line here. There is no doubt that there are some people in this country who have a similarly twisted mind, right? And and even worse, who commit acts of rape and show off about it. And you know, we do see this. We see this in those disgusting incidents in which there are. Uh, young women who are raped by a gang, you know, groups of men who then mm-hmm. take videos of it. So there's no doubt that there are some instances of that. But in general, it's it just, I've never, I personally have never heard anything like that. I know other people who have said they've never heard anything like that. And so, you know, when, when it comes to talk about rape culture and language, what we can talk about is, you know, the, the kinds of conversations that usually 
would happen, that might happen, in which groups of, of men are together, groups of women are together. And at one point, that becomes rape culture. This is something that we all need to be very attuned to and very careful about. That's a really excellent point because it is um, – there's a slope to it of the gift that we get when we are in same-sex environments and we can connect with other people who share our experiences. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, and there are times that, you know, guys will be together. It's, it's not – we're not the stereotypes. You know, usually if you're in a locker room afterwards – if you're talking at all, if you're talking about what you just did in the game or, or you know, the work that you just had or life. But, um, you know, in the instances in which we're going to hear sexual talk, even if guys are getting graphic, it might be them describing their own sexual experiences or lying about their own sexual experiences, which, you know, I, I read about in my book. People are always lying about sex, and that confuses, you know, young men who are trying to understand sex. Um, and, and sometimes there is graphic discussion about women's bodies and, and women do the same thing you know when when they're in groups sometimes they discuss men's bodies but as soon as anything crossed the line into being any kind of description of unwanted touching unwanted oh my god force yeah i mean we all have to instantly have our ears perk up and and say something immediately and not be afraid to say something and to speak up if that ever does happen. So even though it's not rampant, um, anytime we hear anything even remotely like this, we all need to feel empowered and strong enough to, to stop it. Now, Josh, one of the things that you do for all of us is you are this vocal, empowered man, and you stand in front of America and the U.N. and say things that people aren't always willing to wrap their heads around. Mm. In these yeah. intimate spaces, though, it's got to be really hard. I know it is just to stand up to bullying. Bystanders. It's a difficult thing for people to learn how to overcome, but it's essential that we learn how and that we find the courage. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say that, and it's true. I mean, a lot of what I do is give voice to what a lot of men are already feeling and did never ever feel they could say. So it's true. You know, there were a lot of people who thought that I, I would experience negative reactions when I started speaking out about what. What statistics really show, you know, for example, when I when I tell people about modern men and modern fathers, how we're actually very involved and the average working father spends three hours a day caring for his kids and virtually all that to live with our kids, care for them in every major category every day. These kinds of things that, that break stereotypes, um, a lot of men, most men respond really positively to that because what they say to me is, I thought I was the exception. I thought the, I was the only one who was the good guy. I thought most guys out there were bad guys who ignore their families and go to bars and kick their feet up and do nothing. So, you know, the, the power of these stereotypes is, is still really terrible. So, yeah, they're, they're, sometimes it's difficult um, to, to speak out in the way I do. And there are Neanderthals. You know, they do still exist. There are other men Clearly. like Trump out there who still see women as objects and who think it's okay to talk like that. And at that time, yeah, it can be very difficult to speak the truth. But those cases make it even more important to do so. It's, it's like standing up to a bully, you know, and, and it's given how rampant sexual assault is in this country, um, it is absolutely essential. And I write about this in the book. It's essential that we get over that fear and stand up to the bully and speak out. Absolutely. And also speaking of fear and where it hurts men and it hurts the equity that's created by having men as engaged parents, um, there was a section of All In that talked about what men experience when they're operating in what's largely a woman's world and how they're seen uh, as dangerous. And that this kind of discussion that it's normal to be a predator really doesn't help. Oh, it makes everything worse for everyone. It makes things worse for women, you know, in addition to worse for men. It, this isn't a vicious cycle that we have. You're right. I mean, I wrote about media and the fear of men and, and like all these false ideas that we teach kids very early on, like how we teach children that, if you're lost, find a mommy with kids. Not a parent, but a mommy. <laughs> right. And, and so the book, I interviewed the head of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and she agreed with me. She said it's time to stop that. It's time to teach kids to, to find a parent with kids because men with kids are just as safe in general as women with kids in general at a playground. Um, so what happens when, when we teach people to fear men, 
it makes it much, much harder for men to be caregivers because they then get ostracized when they're on the playground. No one wants to talk to them. Or they go to the mommy and me groups, or, and, and they feel very alone because women see a man caring for their kids, and they are afraid of them. And there are lots of men who have experienced being out in public with their own children and the kids crying because kids cry sometimes and people <laughs> assume that the dad must be a kidnapper. Right, so or, or at, at best, inept. No, oh, yeah, I'm at best. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, inept would at least acknowledge that we're, that we're the father. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, and, and so any time that you make it tougher for men to be caregivers, you are making it tougher for women to succeed in the workplace. And that's why all of these things, having a realistic understanding and speaking out to, to correct our understanding of modern masculinity and to rid our culture of toxic masculinity, these are essential for giving women and men, giving girls and boys equal opportunities in, in life. Absolutely. And it's also, you're, you're helping to create a whole generation of men that are also role models for our children who are can be caretakers and caring and tender and responsible in ways that they were never acknowledged that they could be by gender norms. Right. Yeah, and, and you know, well, I appreciate what you say about me, but I mean, it's also what's fascinating to me, the more I, I explore this and travel around the world and, and do my talks and stuff, is that um, I keep, you know my background, I should tell listeners in case they don't know, in my work at CNN for years, I was a fact checker. So I learned how to see the difference between fake studies and real studies. And so I have found international studies in which men around the world are acknowledging that these stigmas hurt them. They want to be more hands-on with their families. They want to be more all-in. They want to be able to spend more time at home caring for their, their kids. But the societal norms against it are very, very strong. Um, and then you have instances like this in which you have you know, a man who is, is very much an outlier in the language that he used. Um, you know, what Trump said and the way he talked about women in general. I mean, he just insulted Hillary Clinton's body. Who does that? No, it's unbelievable. Right. You know, he's actually representative of extremely few men, but people are very quick to, to paint a very broad brush and say that's a problem with men in general. And that only furthers the stigma and, you know, doesn't honor the changes in masculinity. We're, what we should really be doing and what you're doing so well is celebrating the fact that while there are men who engage in this kind of talk, obviously, and it's got to stop, there are so many who do not, who are changing the understanding of modern masculinity. And we, we need to keep pushing in that direction. And also the other side of that, unfortunately, is that when situations like this emerge, that um, we don't dismiss it because we don't accept it as a norm. And so that we can start to look at it for the kind of pernicious problem that it is. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and another, you're right. Another piece of this is that um, sexual assault is rampant. And that doesn't mean that men are going around boasting about it. So it's important you know, that I say to you that while I know um, I'm saying this isn't normal locker room talk, um, it's also true that sexual assault can happen a lot. And another piece of what we need to do is, is shine a light on it and yes. have people um, be willing to talk about it. And, you know, within that world, it's really crucial that we also talk about the, the very large number also of male victims of sexual assault including by you know, women, men who were raped by women. And when those numbers came out a few years ago, it was shocking to a lot of people. And the more we talk about that, the more we do to drop uh, all the stigmas in general against victims and, and to get real and to come to understand that what we need to do as a society is focus on individual behavior and, and make um, the horror of bodily intrusion stop in general, you know, no matter who is doing it, and remove any shred, any suggestion for the Neanderthals that being able to walk up to a woman and grab her private parts is, is somehow manly because real men and real women, real adults um, who are mature individuals don't do that to each other ever. The change agent that I'm talking with today is Josh Labs. Um, and if you want to join in our conversation about sexual harassment, how to stop it, and the amazing role models that men can be for one another, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. I think you're also bringing up something, Josh, that's really important about the relationship between the language that we use and how we talk about things, and the attitudes that we endorse and then how that affects behavior. And so one of the things that we've talked about sometimes jokingly and sometimes seriously on Women at Work is the pressure that women face to be like men. 
and to go into the workplace and how important it is actually that women don't try and be anybody other than who they are. And that um, and John Gersma's book, uh, The Athena Doctrine, does a beautiful job of talking about the way that we hold all different kinds of attributes um, and yet we characterize some of them as masculine and some of them as feminine. And that as men and women, we can possess all of them. And so that men can possess attributes that we correlate with feminine, but are the best of what people can be, like being caring and innovative and inclusive. And women are just as capable of exhibiting those that we correlate with male behavior, some of which are great, like leadership and strength, um, but others that can also be um, too powerful and uh, belittling. And that... You know, if we don't recognize that we have all of these dimensions in us, then we don't we can't understand and honor when the unlikely person becomes the victim, when the male yeah. is the victim of sexual harassment. Right. No, you're exactly right. No. And, and I, mean, I love that was very eloquent, the way you just put it. And, um, you know, when when we look at this, the more we can look at all of ourselves as individuals, the, the better we are. You know, I, I was in this panel at Kellogg. Um, recently in Chicago, and I was or talking about this, that one, one of the best ways to overcome your prejudices about other people in all kinds of ways in the workplace, I have this mantra that I, I say to myself and that anyone can say to them, which is, the only thing I know about this person is what I know about this person. And when you say that to yourself, you start to realize that, that you probably were making a lot of assumptions based on looking at them, based on their <laughs> right. race and their gender and their hair. And, and their the shoes and the rest of it. Yeah, and you literally don't know any of those things. Um, and this is one way in which we all benefit from the tremendous developments from you know brave people in the LGBTQ community who have been pushing us forward as as a society. Um, because the more you know, that is all about breaking down traditional gender norms and traditional mm-hmm. expectations. But up against all that, you also still have a responsibility on men because we are a patriarchal society, and we are the result of, of you know generations of that patriarchal society. And sometimes people say to me, I think it was um, uh, maybe my interview when they interviewed me for the New Republic. The interviewer said, um, "Does it?" ever strike you that you speaking out about these kinds of issues seems to carry extra weight because you're a man. And I said, yes, and that's messed up, but it's also therefore a responsibility. So while we need to come to all understand all of ourselves as, as individuals and we need to get past these presumptions, it's also true that men, because we are men and we do have the advantages of being men, there's a responsibility that comes with that, and that is to, to try to end those advantages and, and equalize the playing field. And that means that we have to be unafraid about speaking out about the truth in all directions mm-hmm. and, and empowering ourselves to, to get past um, you know, the, these backward madmen ways of, of seeing the world. And, and to me, that's what's happening right now. It's, it's Donald Trump and his fellow disgusting anachronistic cohorts locked in a tug of war against me and all the other modern men. And we just have to keep tugging until they fall down on their faces and we physically drag them into the 21st century. <laughs> you know, part of what's at the heart of what you're saying, though, that's really great, Josh, is um, that this is about power and that when we have this kind of discourse around sex and the the sense that we can that women are objects and we can just do what we want to them and with them it's not about sex it's about power right yeah it, yeah right no it is and and the two are very intertwined you know what's interesting okay so it's it's not about sex it's about power but it's also really important that we um understand how often those two things become entwined in people's psyches yes you know, no, no matter who is doing that so someone you know might have sexual impulses sexual desires and then use their power to to try to get those so it's not always clearly separated especially in the minds of of attackers and if you listen to even just the language that donald trump was using saying that he can get away with doing these things the fact that he even wants to do those things are aside of simultaneously his own um, you know, sexual hang-ups, but also his desire to express power. Right. So the extent to which they get entwined with each other it really is a big problem. And it's the same with, with women, you know, instances in which women have, have pressured men into sexual rape as men. It, it is, um, you know, often a combination of the two. So understanding that sex 
um, shouldn't be all about, you know, achieving power over someone else is really important. And I'm, I'm glad that you talk about that. Um, but also I hear that phrase a lot and I, I'm not sure it resonates with the people who are most troubled and most likely to be committing these horrors because I think to them, they just, they're, they're so intertwined that they don't have a real understanding of it. Right. That. And it's also complicated by the fact that in, um, a culture with rigid gender norms, um, women are given power through their sexuality and by accepting being objectified. And it's also, there's a complicated place where women find authentic power in it, which I personally still have a hard time wrapping my head around, but I respect that there are a lot of women who feel that way. Mm. And um, when those two things come together without consciousness and without mutual respect, um, we get these really dangerous dynamics. And they backfire in ways that I don't think society expects. Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying about, like, you know, using that for power. A friend of mine is a very successful businesswoman, and she told me that every time she has to strike a deal, she wears a really low-cut shirt and puts on extra lipstick. And um, she has every right to do that. You know, she, she's using – when it's with a man and only with a man. <laughs> right. Right. And, and so, I mean, she has every right to do that, and I, I don't want to even, you know, go in the direction of suggesting that that, automatic, that the way a woman dresses ever means anything about what the man will be getting or experiencing sexually. Certainly not. Uh, but, yeah, people – can find power in expression of their sexualities, and um, that's great. I mean, you know, it's just another part of who you are. But as as a father of a daughter, you know, even though my daughter is a baby, so she's tiny, she just turned three, so she's not a baby, but um, you know, I always had these concerns, and I was always watching out for them. Um, but I also have become even more attuned to that ever since she's born. And just the idea, it's so messed up that because of her gender, there will be um, men out there who will look at her and think of her as an object. You know, that, that's where rape culture comes in. That's the, you know, the most distant parts of rape culture, just the way that a man might just look at her in, when she's a woman, when she's grown up, and, and think of her in a certain way as though she's a thing that he can have. And that's that to me where the core is. That's, where that is really the core of it. We're talking about sex with young men. So, so young men come to understand what sex really is. And it's not also helping them develop a perspective on sex. And we talked about this with Peggy Ornstein, and you have a marvelous component of the book about sexual wealth. And mm-hmm. Peggy talks about intimate justice and how do we create a discourse, whether it's between ourselves as adults or with our kids and in society as a large, where we look at sex as part of a normal, healthy relationship that rewards the people in it. Right. Yeah. And, you know, this is why the lying about sex, the boasting about sex, and even the, you know, the incredible prevalence of TV images, which people start to think that's what sex really is. Um, it, it really does mess up uh, the minds of so many people about what sex is and can be. And you're right. I mean, I have a chapter on sex, and then right after it, I have a chapter called The Sex Wealthy, in which I, I talk to this amazing couple who has an extremely um, healthy and very active sex life that's also very realistic about what sex and sexuality are. And all these things are intertwined, you know, the, the toxic masculinity and um, also the pressures on women. You know, through a very long series of ridiculous pressures on women um, lead us all into these very warped visions of what it is to um, have sex and, and to handle sex drives and to um, have sexual interactions with other people. And it can also lay groundwork to um, really terrible behaviors. And so to me, you know, one of the most important things for all modern people to do is to be very realistic about describing healthy, positive sexuality um, in a way that teaches kids this is a way that is, is <laughs> this is a good way to live. This is a sensible way to live. And, and this is how human beings respect each other in the world of sex. Absolutely. And you know what, Josh? We have a caller. Um, you game. Right. So, uh, Steve, thank you for calling Women at Work. What's on your mind? Okay, I'm, I'm a very loyal listener to all the work shows, and I listen to your show quite often. And I, I do appreciate the, the, the dual versions today. Um, my, my initial reason for calling was to kind of put some, get your, I guess, your input regarding men getting sexually harassed, which I, I believe, Josh, is that your name? I apologize. Yeah, Josh. <laughs> Okay, it shines some light on, but um, it seems like there's a bias or a generalization against men as predators in the workforce, whereas, you know, coincidentally, I had three incidences in, involving me with people 
women, um, I guess sexually harassing me. It's not something that I brought up. It's something that was acknowledged by other people, and those three people got fired at three different occasions. Wow. So, I, yeah, so I, I'm, not, I'm not a real stickler, but I understand that there's two sides of it, and sometimes <clears throat> it looks like the male side is more dominant, and that's not, in my experience, the case. No, I was sexually harassed by a woman. No, I, I hear you. When I was first starting my career, I was sexually harassed by a woman who had power and the ability to uh, shape whether I was going to have certain opportunities, you know, hang forward. I mean, she was really graphic, explaining what she wanted to do to me and um, drawing pictures, and it was uh, it was stunning. No, well, guys experience sexual harassment as well. And if you see, this is, this, is, this is very good that you're speaking out about it, that you called in to say this, because the more that we talk about this, the more we bust open all of the uh, the myths, and we um, we help get rid of all the stigmas that people might feel. This this can happen to absolutely anyone, and uh, the fact that it can happen to men is something that we need to talk about as well. It, it it ends it helps end the power dynamic and the suggestion that men are somehow always in charge of every dynamic they ever have with uh, with a woman. So, Steve, thank you so much for calling in. I applaud your courage. I love that you're listening to us. Um, and I hope you'll continue to reach out when you can enrich the conversation. So thank you so much. Um, we've been talking today with Josh Labs, journalist, activist, author of All In, and as you can see, um, a passionate contributor to making a more equal society. So, Josh, thank you so much for joining us on Women at Work. I always love having you on the show. It is such a pleasure. This is one of my favorite interviews to do. I'm so glad you're doing this uh, this hour. Uh, Josh, so take care, and we'll hopefully talk to you soon. Um, when we get back, we're going to get to talk with Dr. Sean Harper about the power of mentorship and how men can change the conversation. In the meantime, if you'd like to join it, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. I'm Laura Zarrow here on Women at Work with Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, and we'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zarrow, back with you to continue talking about locker room talk and how to fundamentally change the conversation. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And we'd love to know what you're doing to change the conversation and improve it. In the meantime, I'm going to get started with my next guest. We're honored today to have Dr. Sean Harper, who is the executive director and founder of the Center for the Study of Race and Equity in Education at Penn's Graduate School of Education, my alma mater, by the way. Um, he's joining us today. He is a powerful advocate for equity in all the avenues of our culture and societal structures. He writes and conducts research on topics that deeply impact lives of traditionally underserved populations, examining race and gender in education, black and Latino male student success in high school and higher education, and equity trends on college campuses. Widely published and frequently honored by his peers. It's no surprise that he was appointed to President Barack Obama's My Brother's Keeper Advisory Council in 2015. And if that's not enough, he's also the co-director for RISE for Boys and Men of Color, which is working to combat inequality on four fronts, education, health, juvenile and criminal justice, and workforce development. So with all that, I could go on and on, but I'm going to get the ball rolling and say, Sean, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you. That's such an incredibly generous introduction. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, you've totally earned it. So um, as I mentioned to you before, I was blown away when I read your Washington Post piece um, about that men do talk like Donald Trump and how do we stop it. Um, Sam Poe called it bro talk in his fabulous New York Times opinion piece. Would you help give us language for what kind of talk we're talking about? Sure. Let me just provide, though, some context for my Washington Post op-ed. Okay. I was keynoting a conference in Memphis, and I checked into my hotel and turned on the TV that Friday evening, and there was the breaking news of Donald Trump and Billy Bush uh, in the video, the, the, the now infamous video, yes, right? the video. And, like, honestly, Laura, within, like, 10 seconds, I said to myself, oh, I know these guys. Right. I, I know them really, really well because I've been around these guys for much of my life. You know, I think. Many Does that of, mean you've been hanging out with Donald and Billy? No, no, well, not quite Donald and, and, and Billy. You know, I originally titled the Washington Post piece, The Trump I Know. Uh, and it's because I know so many Trump like 
guys. So this who, is behavior that you've seen. I've seen. I've I, I've encountered firsthand. Um, it not only happens in locker rooms, but it happens in in bars, in barber shops, on golf courses, and I even mentioned in the piece that it happens at birthday parties. So a few years ago, I was at a birthday party for a five-year-old. And I noticed that, you know, there was a group of guys sort of hanging out uh, out in a corner. So, you know, I went over and these were mostly straight guys or presumably all straight guys, right? And, you know, these were dads who were sort of, you know, standing off in the corner, you know, rank ordering the women and talking about, you know, which women are hot and which are not and which ones they would do various sexual things to and, and and so on. And, you know, I said, guys, we're at a birthday party for a five-year-old, right? This isn't, this isn't right. It's also not right to objectify women. So you said this. Yes. I, I, Thank I've, you. I've amassed for myself a reputation for being <laughs> disruptive in these ways when, you know, guys are doing what Trump called locker room talk. Kind of sort of like Melania Trump's. I can't believe I'm saying this. Can't be, I, 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 I sort of like Melania's characterization of boy talk, right? Because I do think that there is this way that boys are and young men who become 59-year-old adult men are socialized to talk when they're around other boys, around other guys. So they're guys. learning this from somewhere. Right. I think that it is born in schools, is certainly born in in families, um, you know, when boys are coming up and they behave badly, it gets sort of excused as, you know, boys will be boys, right? Um, so I do think that there's something about the excusing of the male boys mis- are fundamentally rougher, bolder, right? Right, less exactly. contained, exactly. more raw, yes. Um, and even in my own research, so I study young men in high schools and in higher education. And young men talk with me in my research about the enormous pressure that they feel when they're in predominantly or all male spaces, because there are guys who are sometimes, you know, saying, you know, really derogatory things about girls and women. And other guys feel some real pressure to sort of jump in and high five and validate what's being said, because it seems that everybody's on this same page but actually, the guys say that that's deep down inside. That's not, not really what they who. Want. Yeah. So when we talk about helping women find their own power, the wildness within them, the strength to stand up, part of what we recognize is that when women are given role models and all these figures that they're supposed to identify and learn from that diminish how big they can be, women then believe that's only how big they can be, and it's a journey to break out of it. So I think what I'm hearing from you is that we're imposing a stereotype on young boys that dismisses bad behavior. And then there's something in the group culture that pushes it back upon the boys and young men who may have been freed from it. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. Um, I want to be sure here to, you know, attribute the early socialization of boys and the excusing of boys will be boys uh, to both, you know, moms and dads. It's yes. not it's not just the women in their lives. You know, no. there are men who. You all know, the also adults in our culture that. do this. Yeah, Not yeah, all adults right. do this, but, but, m- but many. But when it's happening, it will come from all genders. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. What I say in the Washington Post piece is that my research makes very clear that, you know, a 14-year-old high school freshman needs, and let's do situate this example in a locker room, a 14-year-old freshman student athlete needs his coach to stand up and say to the 15 to 16 year old boys that, Hey, this is not how we talk about women. Right. Um, The 14 year old doesn't have the confidence Mm -hmm. to do it. And furthermore, he needs the peer support. So I was going to ask about that to talk to me more about where, when can peers help with this and when does it need to be, an adult, and does the adult need to be a role model? Is that the same thing? Sure. Uh, the adult definitely needs to be a role model. And behave like one. And behave like one. You know, um, I, I even said in the article that, you know, as a young kid, you know, I would be around adult men who would objectify mm-hmm. women. And 
in front of me and in front of my male cousins and, you know, other young boys. And I think that we sort of learned the script of how to assess women's bodies and how to, uh, you know, talk sexually about them from adult men in our lives. So, you know, for young men, I think that it has to come from from older men and also reinforced by the women in, in, in their lives, too. Right. Uh, so but- does it sorry, does it become like a kind of social currency? Yes. And a mechanism for men to connect with each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard young men in my research say that there is some currency that comes along with talking in this way, even if you're not being your authentic self, right? That you want to feel like you fit in and you sort of get the cues that, you know, well, this is what scores you validation, um, in, in these spaces with other men. I do want to go back to your question, though, about uh, the role of peers. So I do, I do have a bit of good news, I, I, I suppose, right? Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So I've done this uh, study of fraternity men. So undergraduate men in uh, mostly predominantly white fraternities at 20 very large public universities. So think of the quintessential you know, frat row meets big time sports culture. Okay. Right. And um, I study men in these, in these IFC fraternities who had amassed for themselves reputations for not saying and doing sexist, racist, and homophobic things. And furthermore, they were the ones who were notorious for standing up and holding their chapter brothers accountable in the fraternity houses when and in other places when they would say or do something sexist, racist, or homophobic. So the focus of that particular study for me was to first understand, like, well, what is the impetus for these guys, right? How and can, do they find and, their and can we bottle it and, you know, make all fraternity men drink it, right? <laughs> um, but then also to, to, to understand how they skillfully navigate, uh, you know, pressing their peers and holding them accountable and calling them out while also still being, like, you know, a cool bro. Who... Okay, so if I promise to read the report, will you tell me here? What was it about these young men that gave them the courage to do it? And how did they, what behavior did they exhibit that helped them be successful? Sure. You know, they talked about, many of them, how their moms and dads, you know, just said to them explicitly that, you know, these are some really problematic views that uh, that people have about women and about minorities and, you know... So part of it was sort of early pre-college messaging from families. But I would push back on them in, in, in the interviews and say, wait, are you suggesting that your fraternity brothers, your chapter brothers, didn't come from yeah, that good they didn't families? didn't get the same messages. And that they didn't get the same messages. And, you know, the guys would sort of suggest to me that I'm not sure that they got it or at least that they heard it in the same way that I heard it and that I internalized it um, as a young person. So that was important for them. It was also important for them to be their full authentic selves. Like they, they understood that there was something quite fraudulent about co-signing on, you know, these statements and on right. these problematic behaviors. And these guys were like, look, I'm just, I'm going to be my authentic self and, just say that this isn't right. This isn't who I am. So the authentic self that I get the pleasure of talking with today is Dr. Sean Harper, who's the executive director and founder of the Center for the Study of Race and Equity in Education at Penn's Graduate School of Education. Um, And if you'd like to ask Sean questions or join in the conversation, you can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So coming back to the differences in these households, you know, fortunately, um, our kids are growing up in an era where there's different messaging than there was certainly when I was a child, even though, as I talked with Josh Loves about last time he was on the show, we were the free-to-be-you-and-me babies. But the degree to which that's been internalized and integrated into our sense of selves differs from person to person. Right. And so part of what made these young men um, able to find a different way is it had become part of their self-identity. Yeah, that's right. So I think that we need more identity-affirming spaces for young men which is something that I advocate for in my in my work uh, repeatedly. Um, you know, gender is often synonymous with women. 
So if there's any sort of gender-focused programming or any gendering of the curriculum in high school or in college, that almost always means that we're going to focus on women's issues, right? And Which is so important. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, <laughs> definitely not arguing. You know, I teach in gender studies as well. So no, no, no. I mean, right. I, But I think it's true. And isn't this something that we do when we're talking about sexuality or race that we usually focus the conversation on the underrepresented group. Yeah, that's right. Where we need to close the gap without right. recognizing it as a, a multiple as having multiple dimensions. Yeah, that's right. And without recognizing that men have gender too and that men <laughs> right. have been socialized to do their gender and perform their gender in ways that are oppressive to women in ways that make them accidental or inadvertent or unconscious sexist and misogynist. Uh, so it, I, I think that those things, too, are the byproduct of having so little in our culture and in our schools and universities that focus on men and their masculinities and their and their identity development and so on. Because our gender, we don't experience our gender realities in a vacuum. Right. It's in a society that has the other gender having different experiences. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that as you're working with young men on these issues of masculinity, I want to come back to, because um, I think this is a marvelous um, arena to talk about are the young men who are in frats. Um, there's been a lot of news stories about bad behavior by young men in frats. Peggy Ornstein, who I think wrote a fabulous book, Girls and Sex, yes. explores what's going on there. Um, yet at the same time, you're showing us young men who are making better choices, who are standing up as role models to their peers. Right. What's going on? So we know that they have a different sense of themselves. They internalize these messages. In the interaction with their peers, what are they doing that's different so that they're not ostracized or punished for being disruptors? Yeah, so one of the things that these men in this 20 university study did so beautifully is that they found other men in their chapters who also had those same values. They had a way of... Uh, of recognizing that, wait, this guy is just like me. Um, he may be pretending to be like what he believes is the majority, but actually he's more like me. So they appealed to guys that they knew had certain values and had been uh, raised in particular ways and had certain gender commitments. And they started to build coalitions of, of men within their fraternity houses now, these were not huge coalitions. Sometimes it was just like two of them or three of them. But, but at least they weren't alone. They were not alone, right? Um, I think we need more of that in workplace mm -hmm. environments where, you know, men find other men who can help uh, to dismantle sexism um, and call out, you know, sexist things that, that, that other men say and do, right? It's... It's a lot easier to do when you know that you aren't the only one. Yes, when you have that support and you're not standing up there alone. Right. I'll say just one more thing that I think has some workplace implications. So these guys in the fraternities, uh, when it was time to do a new pledge class, they were very much looking for newcomers to the fraternities who seemed to have some of those values. And they got to them very early and sort of pulled them into you know, onto this side, right? I think the same thing needs to happen at work, right? When we're hiring uh, people to work with us, we need to hire more men who are not going to delight in paying women less and who are not going to, you know, go to happy hour with the other guys and, you know, rank order the women and say all <laughs> right. sorts of sexist and ridiculous things about them. Um, we have a call coming in. Um, Ellen, thanks so much for calling women at work. What's on your mind today? Um, I just wanted to say it's a fascinating conversation you were having. Our son went to an all-boys school that was really focused on building good men. And uh, he went to school in Canada. And when he went to college in the U.S., he was absolutely horrified by the frat uh, attitudes. And he did exactly what you were talking about. He went out and recruited uh, a wider basis of race and um, attitude and, and you know he even went to a boys school that there was a transgender boy um attending so it was a very uh, although traditional uh, uh a welcoming environment towards these things and he really struggled through a number of years with people around these issues of what went on in in frats it, frats aren't popular in canada 
and he really felt that that really that whole situation has to be reexamined because at the time he's getting this amazing education, but then he is hearing these incredible uh, traditional views towards women that he didn't feel were acceptable that were really part of the frat culture. So I, I totally agree with what you're doing, and people really need to address this because for him it was a shocking experience. Thank you. I uh, am so grateful for uh, you sharing, and I'm so grateful for your son um, and the, uh, the the commitments that that he made when when, when he was in college. Um, yeah, we need more young men like your son, and we need uh, for universities to assume more educational responsibility for helping young men to um, understand themselves as gendered beings and to come to to recognize the ways in which they've been socialized and so on. You know, I have a book, College Men and Masculinities is the title of it. And I make an argument in the book that there are roughly a million college educated men that are um, that graduate each year. And I make the argument that to send nearly a million college educated men into the world without a proper course of study in gender and without sort of awakening their consciousness about their own gender views and behaviors makes colleges and universities complicit in the perpetuation of sexism and and, and gender inequities in our society, in our workplaces, and and so on. So we, we have to do better as educators at universities of ensuring that young men don't graduate from Penn and elsewhere and go into the world and, you know, oppress women and other, you know, do other horrible things. Absolutely, Ellen. So I congratulate you and thank you. Thank your son for us. And thank you for calling Women at Work. We really appreciate it. So, Sean, one of the things you were talking about before was um, the importance of learning from other men and the role of role models. And I know that this is a big part of the work that you do. I think it's part of my brother's keeper. Could you talk about the importance of mentorship for men and the different places where young men can find role models? Sure. I have actually a brilliant example um, from here at the University of Pennsylvania. This is my 10th year on the faculty here at Penn. Um, For the past decade, I've been the faculty advisor for Black Men United, which is an undergraduate student group here. Um, that meets, you know, once every three weeks or so. And when we meet, is usually for 90 minutes over food and good conversation. So each BMU meeting has a particular topic for, for the night. So sometimes it's about the experience of being underrepresented at Penn. Other times it's about the uh, senseless, you know, murders of unarmed Black men um, in in our larger society, other times it's about sexual assault and misogyny, and you know, imagining what kind of man you want to be when you graduate from Penn and you go and work on Wall Street. So there are a range of topics, but usually just one topic per night, right? So, you know, this is a space where, depending on the topic, there's anywhere from forty to a hundred black undergraduate men who are engaging in conversation. Um, and I can absolutely assure you that there is no locker room talk happening <laughs> there, right? Uh, but they have I, more important things to talk about. Much actually. more important <laughs> things. But I think that there is a certain version of role modeling that happens in that space, right? It is a carefully and thoughtfully curated space where men can talk with other mm-hmm. men about things pertinent to their manhood and their masculinity and their lives as black men without it being about breasts and yes and vaginas and objectifying the other gender and right. without it also promoting violent behavior correct yes because we know that women's circles have been incredibly important in building community in helping women evolve and progress politically and socially and economically and the dialogue that happens there actually made a critically safe place for women to exchange information with one another about their own health and sexuality and well-being that wasn't being shared elsewhere that doesn't and that makes it the best version of what happens when we can have our private circles but it doesn't condone 
rape culture. Right. Exactly. What you just described is exactly how this space works. It is a circle for men to talk about these things, including their own health, their mental health and their physical health. You know, things that guys just don't often talk about when they're in the company of of other guys. I do want to make something, uh, you know, really clear. Um, And I I tried to do this in the Washington Post piece. I just think that it's worth, uh, you know, underscoring. Not all men, and perhaps not even most men, talk in the disgusting ways that we heard Trump and Billy Bush talk Mm -hmm. on on, on that bus. I think it's really important. The problem is too many men, though, engage in that kind of talk and the corresponding behaviors uh, that go along with it. Uh, I think that that's where my concern is, that there are too many men. Yes. And which is why we even see in its dismissal as importance um, that when it carries social currency and it also talking about it can detract from social currency in other realms. We have just a few minutes left. So one of the things I'm curious about is, you know, it's amazing that our students get this time here with you while they're at Penn. But if there are um, moms of young boys out there, And they're looking to find male role models for their sons that may not be in their family structures or they're within schools and they're interested in serving as role models for others. What advice could you offer? I know I'm putting you on the spot. Are there there advice you can give to people when they're being asked to serve as role models? Yes, I think that it is important to for role models to not take for granted that young men um, recognize that it's really problematic to talk about girls and young women and older women um, in particular ways. I think that certain adults should sort of take for granted that, you know, there's no way. I can't tell you, Laura, how many times I've heard over the past uh, 10 days that my husband or my son would never talk this way I've, I've, I've heard this from from women and you know my pushback has been yeah when you're around right like you just never you never know so I, I i think that we shouldn't take for granted that young men aren't talking in these ways because we've raised them with you know certain values right i think yes. that, that, that we have to point to you know, other other men who don't behave and talk in these ways. Exactly. So with that, I have to say, Sean, thank you. You serve as a remarkable role model for so many. Thank you for joining us on Women at Work. My pleasure. Um, I'd also like to thank Josh Lebs, our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Dan Baker, and our production assistant, Allie Freed, who did an exceptionally good job with research this week. Our schedule of replays can be found on the SiriusXM website. Tune in next week when we talk with Wall Street Journal reporter Joanne Lublin on her new book, Earning It. Thanks so much for listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Laura Zarrow with Women at Work. Have a great week, everybody. We try. Oh, yes, we can. I know we can. Can. Yes, we can. Great. Gosh, almighty. Yes, we can. I know.